Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the RDU On Stage podcast. I'm Lauren Van Hamert, your host, and on this episode, I'm chatting with June Gralnick. That opening music was Stephen Foster's Beautiful Dreamer, just one of the musical influences in June Gralnick's play, Little Women. For the last two years, Gralnick has been working on this, her 15th play, a contemporary, semi-biographical interpretation of Louisa May Alcott's classic book. In fact, women is not actually spelled out in the play's title. Instead, the word women is replaced by the Venus symbol representative of the female sex, which Garolnik says tells us everything we need to know about the play. Garolnik's story was supposed to have its premiere staged reading presented jointly by the Justice Theatre Project and Burning Coal Theatre last week. But sadly, the cast was told the night before they were set to open that the show would not go on due to COVID-19. The rehearsal was recorded, and I'll share excerpts of that rehearsal during this podcast. Gronick told me that she, like so many other women, fell in love with Alcott's book. But as she got older, realized it was a lie. I am like many other women around the world who grew up loving, you know, loving the story, loving little women. Um, You know, it was something, it was my favorite book. It was close to my heart. And, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, um, as as proved by the book has never gone out of print for, you know, a hundred plus years it's it's, uh, been around. but the truth of the matter is, Lauren, I realized that the play, you know, that the, the, the story had absolutely, you know, very little reality to the lives of my own family and the lives of other families I knew, families primarily of women. Um, and I became, I guess you might say, angry about that um, and tossed the book aside um, not to return to it for, for a very long time. Um, but the book still stayed in kind of my subconscious. You know, it, was still, it still lived inside me. And so I, I wanted to tackle it from, I guess, my perspective, or, you know, and I don't think my perspective is, is necessarily unique in that way, from the perspective of a contemporary family of women and what their real struggles are you know, surviving in, in, in this world. And I wanted to write a very personal play, Lauren. I wanted to use my own family, which is something I had never done before. 
it took me to until uh, my mother died to really start to think about putting putting what was in my head on paper. And and that's been kind of the journey of why I wanted to tackle this book. Um, you know, and you ask me what it's about. It, it, it's about a family of women struggling to survive in the 60s and 70s um, against a, you know, sort of turbulent uh, New York City backdrop uh, of the second wave feminist movement um, and the war of the sexes, as I call it. It is fiction based on fact for me. Um, and uh, I'm really happy I wrote it. It, it, it was a torturously strange and difficult and joyous process all at the same time. Because it's so personal to you and inspired by your own family's story, is there a catharsis in writing it? Yeah, I've asked myself that since the day I started it. And I'm I'm not yet sure of the answer, but I can tell you what was interesting to me in the process. Um, to write this play, in a sense, I did have to forgive all of the people in this play. I didn't want to have a play that was, you know, sort of one-sided. You know, it forced me to see the perspective of what was going on from all the people I portray in, in, in my play to really look through things through their eyes. And and to do that, I think I did, I, I had to let go in so many ways. And I had to challenge myself to really be fair. It was very hard. And yet, yeah, maybe I think I got to the other side of it. I hope I did. I hope I did. I hope people, when they come see this play, folks can tell me whether or not they, they, they see that. They, they see that this, this my, the story of the family is treated evenly for all the characters. What is so interesting to me about this is because of the moment in time that we are sitting in, Me Too movement and, uh, you know, Time's Up movement, there's this resurgence of women empowerment and and like a resurgence of the women's movement. But what has struck me in the interviews that I've done is the younger generation of women now fighting the fight. And I love that they're fighting the fight. I love that. But they're not really aware of the foundation that was laid by the women in the 60s and the 70s who actually started the movement. Uh, Again, I have to say, you know, I've spent, I would say, a good decade looking at the women's movement starting, you know, way back. I mean, starting in the 1800s and looking at that journey. It's something that I've been really, really interested in. It's something that I have really looked at and asked myself that question. I don't think it's young women's fault that they don't know. We've got to be blunt. The history has been buried. You know, the history has not been covered, and history has not, you know, been been part of what people learn. You know, the time, the times up in these these terrific things that are happening now to bring bring women's issues to the front. I, I I'm just so grateful that finally people are talking about this. And I want to tell you what's shocking to me. You know, even though this play is obviously based on personal history, 
every play I've ever done is based on also a lot of research. So even though I lived through the times and I was, you know, I'm very active, obviously, and the story gets into that, some of the activism of myself and, and family members or whatever, I, I went ahead and did research like I would do for any other fictional play that I wrote. And I spent, you know, a lot of time in the New York City Public Library and going through some of the Bird collection. And one thing that shocked me, because I had forgotten about this, was just how bloody radical it was for women to stand up and talk about abortion and what that meant to them and the procedures they had to go through in the process. And I listened to some really early recordings of it back in the late 60s and early 70s of some of the really first gatherings of women openly talking about it. And I literally was sitting in the New York Public Library and started to cry. I cried because I had to think to myself, oh, my God, how is it we're going to – are we going to be here again? Has anyone learned anything? And I want to say this this feeling I have and the journey of writing this play, yes, it was a, it's been a personal journey, but I have to also say it's been a journey for me of really wanting to put women up front, center, in theater. And I, it's just time. The time has come. It's time for us to tell women's stories, and, and, and that's it. And that's, you know, that's just critical to me. And it's been critical for a really long time. And, you know, just kind of to follow up on that, when I spoke to Lauren Gunderson, one of the things that she and I talked about is she really feels that we're at the forefront of a cultural shift in what has traditionally been a male-dominated industry of theater. You know, from your perspective as a female playwright, is there a shift in balance? Oh, Lord. So what I remember, let me tell you what I remember. I remember sitting in a room with all kinds of people, you know, back in 1982 in New York City, you know, the first Women in Theater Network. And we were really all excited. And it was like a who's who. There was a lot of people sitting around that table excited about, oh, my God, the time has come. We're going to change this thing. And, and I think so many efforts were made and so many positive things happened. And yet here we are, Lauren. We're having this conversation today. When you look at the, the story, and I also look back, we have to look back. You know, there were times when women playwrights were, you know, at the forefront. You know, if you look at even the suffragette era, you know, the, you have a lot of women writing for the stage. Did you know that? Does anyone know that? There was a lot of female playwrights. And then, of course, it went away. So I, I think it's been very cyclical in America, um, you know, cyclical in the world. I pray and hope that, you know, that this, the time has finally come to see change be permanent. What is the state of playwriting in, this, in our state of North Carolina? I, I, I want to say I, I, have, I possibly have a unique perspective in that I was first brought to the state of North Carolina as a North Carolina visiting playwright. Through this entire journey, I guess, what I can tell you I've seen is less and less real support for North Carolina playwrights. I think it's not about what's happened in North Carolina. I think it's what's happened nationally. I would say a, 
it's been a double-edged sword. The sword being these wonderful, you know, ten-minute play festivals and and play slams. And you know, I've been, you know, I was actively involved in setting up the first play slam here in North Carolina with folks like, you know, Adrian Pender and Lyndon Harris, who, you know, ran the first ten-minute play festival at the Carver Arts Center. Um, you know, all of that we set up because we thought it would help playwrights in North Carolina so many years ago. Um, but what's happened is it's siphoned into um, this thing where one, most new plays are now just 10 minute plays that are being produced and they're fun and they're wonderful, but the, you know, you and I know that you can't get into the nitty gritty, the meat of the substance in the 10 minute play. You, you can't tell a big story. Um, so it, in a sense, and you know, to me, it's, it's making, the voices of playwrights smaller, shrinking our voices, giving us 10 minutes to say something that, you know, probably can't be said in 10 minutes. Um, and so the idea that, oh, yes, we're serving playwrights, we're giving them 10-minute play festivals, I think is a load of crap. Um, you know, and you saw, the, I, you know, clearly saw the funding, you know, dry up for producing a play, producing a full-length play by a North Carolina playwright. You know, where there's, you know, you have wonderful stage readings. And I want to give a shout out to Justice Theater Project and Burning Cole for, you know, wanting to move forward on, you know, my play, little, you know, Little Women, you know, and give their support to it and, and, and champion it. But, but the, the, you know, the, the flip side of all of this is playwrights need productions, full productions of their play. You know, and, and so Todd London and lots of folks over the years have talked about this kind of, play reading hell you know you just get stuck in play reading hell and, and i think north carolina is, you know certainly has followed that trend there's some wonderful people doing play readings you know um you know uh, you know all over the state but when it comes to fully producing and putting the support of a theater the money the support the audience behind native voices the native voices of north carolinians we just don't see a lot of it. I think it's time to have a real serious conversation across the state about what does it mean if you don't champion Native voices? Are you just becoming, you know, an import business, right? Because you're just importing and not, you know, when you talk about people like Lauren Gunson, it doesn't mean their plays aren't wonderful. They're wonderful, right? But they get wonderful because somebody championed them. Somebody stepped to the plate and said, I'm going to produce this thing. This, you know, this writer lives, so, you know, X, Y, Z. They live here. They're part of our community. We're going to champion their play. And, and that's how you get unique, original theater. And I'm sorry, but I just do not see that happening for the most part in our state. Is the onus on the theaters to take those chances on playwrights who live in our area? You know, if I said yes, I would I would be simplifying too much. I think it's a complex, we have to look at the whole situation and come up some really out-of-the-box solutions um, to how we can address this, this lack of support for our native North Carolinian playwrights. And I would love to have this conversation in a concerted way across the board with theaters, producers, actors, playwrights. What solution can we come up with? Solutions. It's not just one. You know, and I think, of course, Lauren, what you're doing in the podcast and trying to get the word out is so, 
so important. And I thank you so much for everything you've done to, you know, to take up the mantle of the arts um, for our state. I think it's critically important. Um, so I think we've got to put a whole lot of people together and come up with solutions. Agreed. And I think I'm hoping that programs like this raise awareness because I think people live in their own bubble and only see the small theater compartment that they work in and they're not always seeing the big picture, I think. I I think that's true, but it, it, it can't be helped in that, you know, everyone is struggling to make and need. I mean, to, to to make your theater a viable op, you know, entity. To, to to make sure you don't go under. To make sure you pay the bills and, and employ people. You know, so it, it, it's easy to become myopic because you're just struggling moment to moment to keep it afloat. I mean, I think that's the experience of the majority of art organizations in our state. We we struggle. We're all struggling together. Um. So I I think it's really time to. You know, to get some folks together to, to, to come up with some ideas, at least ideas. And maybe technology is part of it. You know, maybe maybe technology can play a really important part in, in how we can start to address this. I don't, don't want to say, I don't know if any good comes out of a pandemic. I don't think so. But if it makes us try to connect with each other in ways maybe we haven't connected before, and to listen to each other, at least maybe that can come out of it and, and start us on a road to good health and good health in the arts, good health in supporting each other's, you know, endeavors as creative beings. So maybe that's the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know. I love that. And that actually leads me to my next question. I can't tell you how many social media posts I keep seeing um, in the last few days particularly that say Shakespeare wrote King Lear during <laughs> the Black Plague or you know who's going to write their their masterpiece who's going to write their uh, novel during this time that we're all in self-quarantine and practicing social distancing how do you think this kind of health crisis this pandemic is going to affect the original work and plays we see when this is over? Um, significantly. I, I don't think it's immediate. You know, I, we, we're human beings. As we live and breathe and go through our lives, obviously everything that happens affects us as artists. It can't help but affect us. It can't help but shape who we become. Um, so I think we are going to see significant impact um, in ways we can't even foretell yet in the stories that are going to be told in, in the ways that we engage with each other um, in, in how we practice our art. I think it's too early to say, we don't know, but I, I can't imagine it not affecting us. And again, if there's something positive that can come out of tragedy, because that's what this is. This is a tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy. You know, I can only hope that, you know, as artists, we can do justice and try to pay honor and homage to this 
struggles and suffering and sh- and even the the funny things, you know. I mean, oh my God, you know, being in the supermarket and watching people fight over a roll of toilet paper. Okay, I was thinking about that the other day. I'm thinking this is insane. That if, if if this wasn't such a tragic situation, I probably would write something about this because it's funny and weird, you know. So I I I. I Try to remain optimistic, Lauren, that, that, yes, something positive can come out of this and we can find a road forward together as artists. And to your point, maybe it'll connect us in new, exciting ways and get us to listen to each other. I hope so. Yes, that is my, that is my hope. You know, I, can't, I was so fortunate and blessed to have an amazing cast. Because literally, we would be coming to rehearsal and things would be changing, you know, by the hour. And I just, it touched my heart what a bunch of troopers they all were. They were just extraordinary, each and every one of them. And I hope it's okay that I would like to say their names and and, and sort of just give a personal public thank you to these people who literally, you know, a few minutes before dress rehearsal, I am calling people up and telling them that the show, we will not be doing the show the next day. Um, so that that's, you know, that's how it was. And I want to shout out to Amber, Nicole Dilger, Mary Rowland, Victoria Bender, Ann Forsethill, Juliana Valenti, Nathan Logan, Fred Corlett, Paul Newell, and Elizabeth Galbraith, with music direction by Maggie Pate and light design and stage management by Corey Arnold. These people were troopers, and they stayed in the game until the game was over. I love that so much. Oh, my gosh, and I'm so glad you shouted out to them because our whole community is grieving right now the loss of the work that we didn't get to see last week and in the coming month or two. I have to remain in my heart. I've always felt that art is important. And I think art is still important in this time of crisis. Yes, we can't consume it in the way that we did before as theater artists. You know, we're not going to, you know, sit in a theater with 700 people and watch a play, but we still can honor what it means to be a creative being. And I think we live in times where creativity and creative solutions has become ever more important to our survival. Survival as, you know, a community of artists, our survival as human beings on this earth. So, you know, I, we're, you know, I think it's important that we honor that and continue to honor it, whatever. The times may be. The staged reading of Little Women has been postponed until later this year. The ticket price of the staged reading was $10, and I would encourage any of you planning to attend that reading to donate the cost of the ticket back to the Justice Theater Project or Burning Coal Theater. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are spotlighting the many artists whose shows closed or were postponed on all our platforms, including Zoom, Instagram Live, and Facebook. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at RDU On Stage for a complete schedule of upcoming virtual events. If you like what you've heard today, please consider subscribing to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit us online at www.rduonstage.com. 
I am going to have Juliana Valente close out the podcast with an excerpt from Goralnik's play, Little Women. Goralnik shared a recording of the dress rehearsal so we could get a taste of the show. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, everyone. Louisa May Alcott should have been the female Shakespeare, not a hack of a moralistic pope. My quill longs to create an Othello, a Lady Macbeth, a King Lear. Tragic characters, so human and flawed, they ignite sin and salvation in our souls. I have betrayed myself. That is the worst of sins. Forgive me. All along the light tower, a princess seeks her muse, while a sad mother storms and strives, jealous sisters too, while flying into the cold darkness. A phoenix did rise, a new self was forming, and her soul began to cry. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.